Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation, a Stranger Things podcast. I'm Robin, and today we're reviewing Chapter 7, The Lost Sister. Coffee for this episode, I figured should be a dark roast, because the nature of this episode is a bit dark, and so I am going with I'm going with Pete's dark roast again, but I am drinking it this time from a mug from a local coffee shop. Uh, right across from uh, where I work, actually, called Frederick Coffee Company, and it's a stoneware mug, and the the image is on is on the Coffee and Contemplation Instagram, as as is every week's coffee featured and mug, and uh, this is I've wanted I've had my eye on one of these mugs for quite a while, and this was actually a birthday gift for me this year, so I'm really enjoying finally finally having one, and now that I've acquired coffee, let's proceed with contemplation. Buckle up. Here we are, the lost sister. As usual, I'll go through this episode chronologically and provide commentary as I go, but I also want to start with some framing, some preliminary groundwork, and some caveats before we jump into the sequential breakdown, because I want to really establish some general and some overall perspective to sort of set the stage for really how I'm coming at this episode. This one is unique in where it falls in not just the season, but also the series at large. And normally I would save a lot of this kind of, you know, this this stuff, these thoughts for the end, for final thoughts. But I think it's important just to sort of clear the air and address these things before we move forward, since this episode is such a wild card. And also to really just be honest about what you can expect because if you're also coming at this episode from the point of like nope i hate it hate it forever you're just hoping that i'm gonna say some really like disparaging stuff about this episode you might as well just skip and go straight to chapter (laughs) chapter eight the mind flare but kind of this is a big part of what i said in that sort of uh episode zero of this season when heidi was here when i when we talked about how throwing a lot of love at season two this is probably the most quintessential example of that my goal in this episode in particular is to really throw some love at it and like really explore why I think this episode deserves a little more credit. That's not to say that there aren't some flaws here, but I think that ultimately it's been reduced to pretty much just its flaws and it has a lot of features as well. So my intention here is to not double down on a lot of the negative critique and criticism that this episode has already received and really looking at it I mean, still critically, but kind of exploring maybe some of the less common sides of it. First things first, though, it's totally understandable if you don't like this episode. I mean, most people don't. Like, I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. And I think the two biggest causes of this massive dislike, even disdain and hate in some cases for The Lost Sister, are one, it screws with time. This episode slingshots us back in time, and not just by an hour or so, but by days. And and we don't even really get a full exact, like, recalibration. They don't give us a date card or a time card, so we don't even really know exactly what the parameters are. Second thing, we experience a wildly geographical move. Everything so far has either been in Hawkins, someplace similar, like the Ives' home, Murray's home, Lonnie's home, etc., Or we just get a dash of something crazy different, like the season two opener. And regardless, we don't linger in any of those places for very long. Third thing, this episode features only one main character and her one journey. No other episode throughout the entirety of Stranger Things does this. Not to my recollection. It zeroes in on Eleven. And as much as we love Elle, it's a really drastic change to everything else that's come before and everything that will come after. That switch up alone was bound to wrong-foot viewers. As much slack as I cut this episode, I don't like this change either. So all of those things combined, I think, created a cocktail that really just hit audiences the wrong way. The structure completely changed, yo-yoing in a whole new direction, only to yo-yo back again to everything we are used to and expect, never to change it up again. At least not in that way. And the other reason that I address all this up front instead of waiting till the end, is because, one, all of the plot beats that happen here are important. And more than that, I mean, they're crucial to who Elle becomes after this. 
She needs to confront these moral questions, and the fact is, as much as I don't like the abruptness of these structural changes, it does drive home the significance of what Elle is dealing with. The lasting impact of this episode is that Eleven would have continued to carry this question, this disquiet, into the finale and into the future, whatever that might have ended up being. And considering that they did lay a lot of this groundwork in earlier episodes, if they hadn't done this, they may have opted to make her confront these questions and make these choices at a far worse moment. I mean, I can't imagine getting to the, to the conclusion of this season, or even into season three, and not having had this addressed. I wish that they had been able to find a way to incorporate it into the fabric of the show's pattern that we already know and love, but I also don't think that they chose to do this on a whim. Everything is so calculated and measured that I think this choice was very possibly intentional, or at least the best they could manage or come up with, given the story that they're trying to tell. And keep in mind, at this point, there was no guarantee of a third season, let alone a spinoff, as I've heard people call this episode. And that may have driven a lot of the choices behind this, and many other episodes for that matter. Now, I've been ruminating on most of these thoughts since season two's release in 2017, because I think I've always taken a more favorable view of this episode, like even since the first watch. And it always kind of surprised me just how much animosity some fans bear this episode, but I know many viewers who wrote off this whole season because of this episode alone, in 2017 anyway. Perhaps they've had a change of heart in the four years since. But that choice to walk away from the show, I think kind of reflects Eleven's decision to up and leave Hawkins and go find some place, someone, something else. That might be a little too meta, but in-universe at least, if you're willing to look at this episode with an open mind, it helps define and underscore Eleven's journey. And lastly, there's a lot that's introduced in this episode, and while being crammed into a standalone segment without the rest of the cast, it does come off as rushed. And incomplete. And that sucks. Honestly, I can't justify that no matter how hard I try. The execution is clunky. And that's really sad, because it winds up sabotaging all the good this episode does in its own right because there is good stuff to be found here. I promise. And so, on that note, we have coffee, we have preliminaries out of the way, let's proceed into the breakdown and explore all of this. We start off by jumping back to the moment after Eleven came out of the connection with Terry. We see that moment again, different music under it, it's a little bit longer, and it's followed by Elle and Becky talking in the kitchen again, and Elle is clearly telling Becky about seeing the other girl in the rainbow room, and that she believes that this other girl is the reason that Terry wanted to talk to Elle. I think implying more even than just telling her what happened. Becky pulls out the files of other missing kids that Terry had been collecting, and one stands out, an Indian girl missing in London. There's a great outtake in the gag reel of this scene where Amy Zemetz, who plays Becky, accidentally hits Millie Bobby Brown with one of the file folders. It's, it's kind of cute. And Eleven tries to find this girl in the photo, no names yet, but can't, despite the blindfold and the static from the TV. Laying in a cot in her bedroom, though, Elle continues to look at the newspaper clipping, focuses on her actual memory, Terry's memory, of the girl in the room, and that's what clicks. Elle finds Collie who seems somewhat aware of Elle's presence. And Kali doesn't quite turn all the way. That certain people are attuned to Elle's gaze is what I think is said being set up here. And I like that. I like that this is like an offset of that. It's not quite an upside down connection. It's not otherworldly, literally, but it is supernatural. Elle, all excited, she jumps up and she goes to tell Becky the news that she, she found her, but overhears Becky on the phone essentially attempting to contact Hopper. We're on the shot of Becky, the door slams off screen, which Becky hears and hangs up. She goes inside and sees that her wallet's been emptied and quickly runs outside calling Jane's name, but Elle is gone. She, Becky's absolutely doing the right thing here. She's talking to Flo, so she is trying to reach out to Hopper, but mentions that there might be another girl missing or in trouble. And I love that bit. Becky knows that this is a bad situation and that it's probably above her ability to handle. 
at least on her own. So she reaches out to Hopper. There may also very well be some motivation here because of what happened to Terry. Like, maybe if someone had done something or asked for help earlier, Terry might have been helped, even in some very small way. Simultaneously, Brown plays this moment with a look of sadness, and may have been directed to do so, but she's not angry or even scared. And this feels like an echo, or even an evolution, of the scene in Benny's diner in season one. Then she panicked and ran, and I think here she feels, in that one shot, another pang of insecurity. Another safe space, no longer made safe, as she sees it anyway. But perhaps the reason that she doesn't look angry is because she may not have told Becky about the fight with Hopper. Why would she have done? So Becky doesn't really know the full scope of what's going on, or even how it's all connected. She may not even know Eleven was staying with Hopper. So it's a sad moment, not a resentful one. And I really appreciate that slight moment of distinction. Even if it's not blatantly obvious, it's there. And then we get our title sequence, followed by Elle on a bus. Searching for Kali again, getting more snapshots, including the soon-to-be-realized hideout with the other characters. We get a needle drop of Bon Jovi's runaway, and Elle disembarks the bus, and she roams the streets, taking it all in. I just love that this looks like a city. It looks like they shot on location. I mean, it's totally the 80s, but it's not over-the-top stylized 80s. It's a little gritty, a little grungy, but not gross, not overly enhanced to look too rough in many different kinds of faces, like it's not just a sea of white people, for instance, and a wide range of body types. The lighting is like that orange-yellow, which feels kind of like that less than frequently maintained street lamps, but it's not like overly saturated. And there's steam from exhaust pipes, the buildings are old, etc. But it's not overdone. And also they either filmed this after it rained or deliberately hosed down the pavement. But either way, it makes the cityscape pop a little more. And it's a subtle touch that I really like. And given that this is probably the most people Eleven has ever seen in person, she does seem in awe, but she's trying to manage that and also doesn't look scared. I mean, she can take out a Demogorgon, so she wouldn't be scared. You know, she's a little intimidated, a little surprised, sure, but also a little odd, too. You know, she's getting to walk around free, even passes some cops, nervously, who don't even pay her any attention. And that's what she's been longing for, at least in part, for the better part of the past year. And this is all portrayed in very quick succession through performance, editing, and direction. And so she wanders away from the main streets, finds an alley, the alley that she envisioned filled with people. Again, if this were any other child in this situation, I'd be freaking out and worried for her, but like, it's 11. And one guy repeats some lines about, they're dead, they're all dead. And every time I watch this, I always think this is supposed to be some sort of foreshadowing or warning or something intentional for our benefit, if not Eleven's. Can't quite articulate it. All I know is that I react to it because there's the contextual knowledge that we have knowing, knowing where we last left the rest of the Hawkins crew with the Demodogs en route to the lab. But Elle doesn't know that. So there's almost this trigger of a reminder, but it doesn't affect Elle because she doesn't know about it, so Elle wanders, still, arrives at a warehouse, unnoticed by the four characters inside, and so she calls out to them. They mock her clothes and then tell her to run along, but she says she's looking for her sister and shows them the newspaper clipping. They go from mocking to incredulous to threatening, Axel holding her at knife point until Kali intervenes, making him see spiders. His shouting at her, I told you, stay out of my head, has some very chilling implications, knowing what Kali does to Eleven later. This also implies that Kali has done this before. Here, it's played maybe not for laughs, but certainly in Elle's favor. It's just an illusion of spiders and makes him look ridiculous. But again, where is the line? What's off limits? Is anything off limits? My guess, given Kali's actions later, is no, that Kali may be a ends-justify-the-means type person. Kali even says as she saunters up, so we're threatening little girls now, are we? Which, like, dude, you're gonna do the same thing. Twice, in fact, and way worse in a few scenes. But more on that when we get to it. Kali herself sees the newspaper clipping, and they all continue to doubt until Elle uses her telekinesis to take Axel's knife. Kali and Elle show each other their number tattoos and embrace. They talk on the roof, alone, 
based on Kali's questions, particularly the, how long have you been with this policeman? She's told her about Hopper, but this combined with other things that happened throughout the rest of the episode, either Elle didn't mention the boys or Kali doesn't retain that part. She only thinks about Hopper. Either way, that's pretty telling. Kali proceeds to demonstrate her powers to Elle in a pleasant, beautiful way. And the music under this scene is Outside the Realm by Big Giant Circles, which is the same track used in the scene in Chapter 2, Trick or Treat Freak, when Mike and Will were confiding in one another. I think the use of this track, the, the mirroring of it, I think it's trickery, but in a way that I don't mind. It's drawing that subliminal parallel, creating a sense of connection, which doesn't turn out to be real. But I think that it's reflective of what Elle is hoping for, rather than what's actually going on. And Elle's question, are you real? Are you real? Are you trustworthy? Can I count on you? Maybe that's not Elle's actual meaning. Maybe it wasn't intentional, but I think it works on both levels. And of course, it, it, it draws the parallel between Mike and Eleven. So I think that's kind of kind of sweet. Elle and Kali share another emotional moment with Kali tearing up. She sort of tucks Eleven in and it feels really sweet and earnest. She, feel, she says she feels whole for the first time and says that this is now Eleven's home. Repeating that word again, that possibility, third time that Elle's heard it, home. I know that Kali calls her Jane because that's how Elle introduced herself, but I'm continuing to call her Elle. I'm going ahead and acknowledging that I'm, de- I'm doing that deliberately because to me, that's who the character is. The character's Eleven. But I want to circle back to this exchange when we get to chapter nine, The Gate, because I think that this is also something that's missing from Elle's relationship with Hopper up to this point. He doesn't share his story with her. She doesn't know about Sarah. And that openness that Kali offers here, seemingly, I think may be what Elle is looking for. Connection. At least with, like, a parental or familial figure. That's different from what she got from the boys. So Kali's display of raw emotion here is likely very compelling for Elle. Is it real, though? Well... Kali goes downstairs, and the music goes away cut off kind of abruptly by a mild burst of radio static, which sounds not unlike a record scratch to me. And the rest of the characters make fun of Eleven some more. But Kali interrupts them. All business, all signs of raw motion gone, and she says she wants to do one, laying out at least general sense of what Elle can do, her powers, and the possibility that they include. So was that emotional display real? Or was she just playing Elle to use her? Textually, we have no proof in either direction. Not here, not thus far anyway. But I think it's a bit of both, listing a little bit to the manipulative side. I think those emotions are real, to some degree, but she's milking them and putting them on display to force the connection with Elle quickly. She sees an opportunity and she takes it. Quick aside, I heard a lot of critique about this episode that it all happened too fast. This bond felt rushed and it felt forced. And like, I don't think that's an incorrect read, but I also kind of think that that may be kind of the point. Kali is rushing Elle, but Elle, as Heidi pointed out last season, is so desperate to be loved. She let Brenner hold her and comfort her, the same man who had her imprisoned and torturing animals and locking her in solitary confinement. Of course she'd reach for Kali the moment she offered a sisterly bond. It all works to me. So don't see the problem with it feeling a little bit rushed outside of the in-universe conflict of, Elle, you're being played, go back to Hawkins. And so Kali and her crew debate doing one, particularly Mick and Axel, who present pretty smart arguments, frankly. A couple of lines that stand out to me in this scene, Kali says, she's in pain, she needs this. Maybe that's true, and maybe it isn't, but I also think that this is Kali projecting. And more on this in Final Thoughts. Elle, meanwhile, checks in on Hopper, kind of. She listens to the radio at his cabin and overhears his call, his apology. It says so much that even in the midst of her running away, she checks in on Hopper. This shows that she's still thinking about him and her reaction to his words shows that she still cares and that his words reach her. They're both emotional and I think they're both feeling some pretty strong regret and remorse over what happened. And I think she's touched by his apology. And that apology stands in odd contrast to Kali's emotion, because after getting that dose of connection, and after what I just talked about with not getting that connection from Hopper, he apologizes, offering exactly that. 
I mean, it's not the same as like the shared experience and him telling her about his daughter later, but it's timed in such a way that it creates just enough of a waiver in Elle, even with what happens later. And like Heidi said about the hotel room scene between Jonathan and Nancy, how without that, she wouldn't have bought the share the damn bed thing. I'm not sure that I would 100% buy Eleven's change of heart at the end of this episode without her hearing this from Hopper. Who am I kidding? Yes, I would, because I like the choice itself. But this scene works so wonderfully because it strengthens her choice so much. And we come out of that scene in the astral plane of her hearing of Elle, hearing the apology with Kali jolting Eleven awake, which kind of prompts the question, was it a dream or did it not really happen? So I don't know what the official answer is, but I think it did happen. And I think that Elle probably reached out, then fell asleep, and it happened so seamlessly that she experienced it like this. And Kali introduces Elle to her friends properly this time. And I mean, cards on the table. I like these characters. I know most people don't, but I do. I mean, we don't get a lot of time with them, but... I, I, I don't know. They don't bother me. I think it's unfortunate that we don't get more time with them because I think they're interesting, at least. And Mick even kind of reminds me a little bit of Lucas as the eyes and the pragmatic one who's always a little on the paranoid side. Also usually right. Yeah, that just felt a little bit like Lucas. And I like the cast, too. I think they're all really good in these roles. It's also worth noting, and I probably should, should have mentioned this earlier when Elle first walks in, that in some ways, the way that they react to her is actually not that unlike the, how the boys reacted in season one. I mean, it's different, sure, because context, etc., etc., but there is that sense of like, okay, you're a danger to us. How did you get here? Where are you from? We need more information. We have our own thing going on that you're now interfering with. You're making our leader not think straight. There are a lot of parallels. None of this crew are from Hawkins' lab, but they're all outcasts and they're loyal to Kali because she quote-unquote saved them, according to Funshine. I'd love to know exactly what this entails. Yet another criticism I heard from angry, nonplussed viewers at the time and, and since. <laughs> it's an unfortunate side effect of shoving all this content into one episode, but it's also the unfortunate side effect of never returning to this group. A lot of the things that could be explored, they're choosing not to. They being the duffers and the writers. Oh well, I guess. Kali dumps out badges of former Hawkins lab workers and or people that are connected with what happened to them and or to Terry. And she explains that they, quote, make them pay for their crimes, her and her crew. Continuing with my observations on the use of flashbacks, cutting away the clips from the first episode feels like a perfectly acceptable shorthand to convey that they're recounting their exploits to Eleven. We don't need to hear it because we can just see quick shots that we've already seen that remind us of what we already know. And Elle's confusion is mistaken for nervousness, and they use a sort of reverse psychology. You know, we can't all be fighters, I guess. To which Elle responds, I'm a fighter. I've killed. And we get quick flashes of to her, her season one kills. I like the distinct emphasis, or lack thereof, on the boys. She instead says that they hurt her. Which is true. I mean, she spent more time in the lab being put in isolation and things like that. But I just kind of like that in in those quick cutaways, you're, it, the, the cutaways themselves, the flashbacks, are focused on Elle and not on Mike, Dustin, and Lucas. It's a nice way to kind of show, I think, where her mental state is in this in this moment. Because it's not even just that they hurt her. I mean, it's the idea that she was forced to do these terrible things, that to, to kill cats and find people. And who knows what else she was, she was forced to do that we didn't see. You know, the fact that her question to Brenner when he presents her with the photo and the name of the, of the Russian person, I want you to find him, that her initial thought is, you want me to hurt him somehow? That says a lot. Anyway, so that's just to, to say that I think it's even though they're technically including the three boys in that flashback, the emphasis is not on them. We see her kill Hawkins lab people in the first sequence, maybe not the very first sequence that we see her in, but she kills she kills those those guys in the back of Benny's kitchen. That's the first set piece that we see her in. It's kind of like, yeah, this this is also the I and I respect that because the show is not avoiding the fact that she has taken life. Like Heidi said last season, she totally killed those two people. The first time we see her assume her power stance, the, you know, shoulders back, head down and bang. We don't know that that was an isolated incident. 
we don't see anything to believe that it that there was more to it than that but hard to say and Kali leans on what Elle has said here by saying herself that they, quote, still want to hurt you, to hurt us. We are simply making the first move. Watching the episode this time, I found myself thinking, you don't know that. I think it's important, too, to emphasize here that this is dicey territory. We're into murky area of the the thing you hear a lot in content like this, which is the they were just following orders thing, which is always an uncomfortable place. But this follows the textbook example of hurt people hurt people. It's revenge, plain and simple. Now, I do think that Kali is coming from a place of believing that this is not maybe not a noble cause, but certainly it's I think she believes in this 100% that she is abs- they are absolutely owed this. But I still think it's coming from a very selfish place. I don't necessarily think that she cares about L in particular. I think she probably does so long as their goals are the same. But as we see, that doesn't last. Going into this training montage, Kali shares a little of her own story and uses it to challenge Elle to dig into her pain and coaches Elle into lifting the broken down freight train, and she brings it to them both. I kind of like some of what Kali says here. She says that hiding from pain doesn't work, and it does fester, as she says, but the key is to not stay there, not to get stuck inside it. That is the dark side. At least, that's what I believe. This scene is very clearly influenced by Star Wars, and it is an inverse of Yoda and Luke, but I always see it as mostly an X-Men parallel for some reason. It reminds me of the training montage in First Class, not an inverse necessarily, but this scene is also a key element to Elle's bigger revelation and power unlocking later. Even though this isn't where I think she should stay, I think that this is all part of her journey. By going through this process, she's getting to see all sides of it. And I think that's crucial. And also, this is a lot that Elle is dealing with. And this is at least one way she can process it. The important part, though, is that she needs the comfort and support of an actual support system of people that really and truly do care about her. And the fact that there's a, there's a question of whether or not that Kali actually has an invested interest in Elle as a person separate from herself says it all. Following this little training montage, though, Kali shows Elle the wall of articles and photos course, I did wonder why this is different from the pile of badges, but Elle recognizes a man from Terry's flashbacks, a man who set the machine to 450. And so she finds him, and they prepare to go out and get him. But first, a makeover. Yes, this is definitely a twisted version of the makeover from season one. And it twisted might be a little bit strong. But then it was about blending in, and this is about standing out, at least to a degree. Except that it's still not Elle's own expression. It's Kali and her friends. Which I buy at this point in the story, and for Elle's age, you know, she is a teenager. There's the sense of like, well, what's cool? And this actually does nicely set up the makeover bit in season three. You know, Max is the first person who will say, what do you like? What do you want to wear? And even when Elle will tell her, I I don't know, it's like, well, try stuff on, find out what you like. So I like sort of the, the trio of, of these makeovers over the course of the three seasons. It's actually a, th- a through line that I think they have handled really nicely and effectively and appropriately in all three seasons. I think there's an added layer here, though, of the fact that there's a superficiality to what's happening in this makeover. It's it's not so much about like, well, it's, it's not really Elle's choice or decision about what she wants to wear. They just kind of make her over to fit in with them. It's it's more I mean, that's that's true, but it's there's there's no depth to it. It's very much skin deep. And that ends up serving as a pretty apt metaphor, that this is sort of a facade that she tries on. She tries on this whole lifestyle and it doesn't actually stick. It's not who she is. And maybe the physical, you know, the the attire that she's been wearing from living with Hopper isn't either, but it's not really about either of those things. And I think that ends up kind of being kind of a cool little additional layer, I think, you know, to this episode. The slow-mo montage that follows of them riding around in the car over the runaways dead-end justice is... I, I don't like it, but I understand why Elle does. It's very clear that she's feeling free, and she's more part of a group than she ever has been before, even with the boys. And they rob a convenience store, and Elle starts to pick up some fruit, but then she spots Egos, And it's all fun and games and taking whatever they want until the clerk comes back out with a gun. Kali tries to sweet-talk him, but Elle just uses her powers to knock him out. They arrive then at the location of their target, this Ray person. Elle only detects him, and so they go in. 
Their target is watching Punky Brewster, and they overtake him easily. Dottie and Axel move into the bedroom to rob him. She takes his meds. Hmm, wonder why he had those. Could it possibly be depression and other mental disorders caused by a past he's ashamed and traumatized by? Hmm. And Axel, meanwhile, looks for money, and Kali and Elle begin their interrogation. Kali makes him see their younger selves, and Elle throws him against a wall. Ray says, I just did what he told me to do. He said she was sick. And then he tells them that he can help them find Brenner, who he insists is still alive, but Kali orders Elle slash Jane to do it, and also to drag it out. And Elle begins the force choke, and then she spots the photo on the floor behind him of him and two little girls who Axel and Dottie simultaneously find in the next bedroom on the phone with a 911 operator. And Elle's hand falls. Kali is unchanged, though, and she keeps encouraging Elle, saying the same things, repeating the same logic. But Elle's face has changed. It's softened. Ray begs, while Axel insists they need to go. The cops are on their way. Kali loses her patience with Elle, and so instead takes out a gun. But Elle, using her powers, knocks it away. Okay, a lot happening here. So... The way that Elle tilts her head when she knocks the gun away is reminiscent to me of the way that she cracked the necks of the two guards who threw her in isolation. It's kind of, it's one of her go-to gestures, but it, since we saw a flash of that scene earlier in this episode, it kind of made me think of it. And it stands out, at least partly, because like then, this is a turning point for her. She's been going forward, forward, forward growing in her power, headed in one direction, harder, meaner, more and more vicious and merciless. And then she had a moment of hesitation, and she pulls away from the choice to kill rather than embracing it. I think that's great. I, I just, I love the way that the rhythm and the dynamics of this whole sequence are handled. That said, I found this to be a pretty surprisingly difficult and upsetting watch this time. I, I don't know if it's because of losing my dad and so it was hard to watch a person who has two little girls in the next room almost get taken away. I did. I found it really upsetting and really unpleasant. I've never been more glad that Elle makes the choice that she does here. It's such a distressing moment. There's all the trauma they're both remembering and feeling, and actually they're all, I mean, including Kali, probably. And I don't necessarily get the impression that Ray is just saying whatever he needs to get them to back away. And even if he is, it's most likely to protect his girls, his daughters, presumably. And, I, and we have no textual evidence to believe that he is necessarily a good father and that, you know, that everything is fine in this situation, but I don't see anything that points to the contrary. That if these two children were in sort of any sort of danger, I don't think that they would have called emergency services. I don't know. Maybe they would have. I don't, I don't know enough about that, you know. No psychologists here. But like my impression and my interpretation of the way this is, that this is all in, presented is that this is not an unhappy home. And more than anything else, I think Elle sees it that way. She sees that it's not cut and dry and that what her choice is in this moment, what her vengeance and her wrath would cost, it's bigger than just her pain. And I love how all of that is conveyed through Brown's expression, the photograph, and a few quick edits. There's no need to linger or drag the sequence out. Very efficient, very quick, and very effective. And it also feels appropriate for what it would be like in the moment as they're experiencing it. High tension, emotions running high, adrenaline pumping, etc. The cops show up and the gang barely gets away. And in the van, Kali scolds Elle, commanding that she never take away Kali's choice to kill or not. And Elle doesn't respond, even when Kali yells in her face, do you understand? Elle looks away, but she doesn't, she doesn't look happy about this at all. Back at the warehouse lair, Mick watches the street below, and Kali comes up to talk to Elle, who's holding, cradling, you might say, her old clothes. And Elle just says, they were kids. And Kali counters with, does that excuse this man's sins? Were we not also children? And Elle just glances away, unconvinced. And I love that. Not only does she not kind of fall for that logic, like that's only half of the, of the equation now, she clearly doesn't think that whatever happened to them justifies the choice to kill Ray here and now. At which point, Kali begins yet another speech, talking about her own experiences, escaping the lab and the people that she met, and offers 
a bizarre parallel to what we saw Elle go through last season. You know, she got to meet the boys who helped her and kept her safe despite the back and forth. Kali mentions the policeman here, but I wonder if Elle is also thinking about Mike, Lucas, and Dustin and how they treated her. You know, yes, there's all this emphasis on Hopper here, but I don't think it's unreasonable to, to think that Elle might be remembering the boys, too. Now, I want to also note that I believe Kali in this moment. I do believe that she has probably lost a lot in a very different way from Elle. Whether or not it's exactly what she describes here, mm, you know, it's awfully convenient that it matches Elle's story with Hopper, even tangentially. But I do believe that she went through something, even after she got out of the lab. Even if it was just the hell of actually getting out. Which, again though, what is that story? I would love to find out. And yes, I know that there is a graphic novel, I know that there's other material, but I'm not a comic reader. I would have liked to have seen it included in the series. But when Kali brings up Brenner, and Elle grits her teeth and insists that he is dead, Kali does, as Heidi described, the unforgivable. She conjures up the illusion of Brenner, making him appear in the room and speak directly to Elle, blaming her, coercing her, even taunting her. This is emotional manipulation of the highest order. This is twisted and it's wrong. And this was the precise moment on my first watch that I was fully against everything Kali stands for. I still like the character. I think she's compelling. I think she's a good character to have in this show. But I was screaming for Elle to leave at this point to get away from all of this. And luckily, Elle screams herself. She screams, get out of my head. And Brenner disappears. Again, curious, because that's exactly what Axel said right at the beginning. Leaves me to speculate what other dark stuff they've all been through and whether Kali manipulates them, too, beyond just the illusion of a few spiders. Kali then continues with sort of the emotional manipulation, which is, this isn't a prison. Elle is free to leave whenever she wants. Like, I'm not keeping you here. There's something, there's something really dark about that. And Kali wraps up by saying, she can go back to Hopper or she can stay and avenge her mother. Allegedly her only two options, Elle is still in danger from the lab, Kali's last line about, let's heal our wounds together, that part's untrue. I don't really think that's what Kali wants. I don't think that's her, that's what she actually is after. I think she just wants to make other people pay, because that's all she knows how to do. And I think she's using the language that she thinks Elle wants to hear. Because again, I think in this moment, it's about what Kali wants, not about what's actually right for this other person. And what she wants is for Elle to stay so that she can continue her revenge quest. And so she'll say whatever she needs to to make that happen. Meanwhile, downstairs, the group bickers, <laughs> you know, playing playing poker and whatnot. And as that happens, they don't see, they miss the police cars pulling up outside. We, and we leave that trouble brewing while Elle upstairs clasps onto her old clothes again and she recalls memories of Mike, Dustin, and Hopper. The specific callback to Mike's quote, No, El, you're not the monster. You saved me. Do you understand? You saved me. So significant here. And then Hopper's quote about halfway happy is this little moment of wisdom that she's remembering. And she's maybe pondering the idea of being happy over seeking vengeance, maybe. I don't know, it might be a reach. But that's when she slips effortlessly into the astral plane where she sees Hopper. And this is when we align with chapter six more fully. We see Hopper reacting to the lab's video feed, followed by Mike running out and saying, it's a trap. And after the image fades and Elle cries out, Mike, where are you? Still in the astral plane. She hears a distant banging and she does the slow turn to look over her shoulder, which I take to mean that she sees a demodog. But we don't know because we cut back downstairs in the warehouse where cops burst in through the door and the group all have to run. And this sort of chase sort of starts, but then kind of stutters to a halt when Kali makes them all freeze and just hold still. And she creates a widespread illusion to the cops that the space is empty. Like, damn. Kali is powerful enough to create the same illusion in multiple minds at the same time. Before, we only saw her do it with one person at a time. We're caught up in the, I think, the tension of the moment, but if you think about what she's doing, that's, it's, that's a, that's a big shift from what we've seen her do so far. 
But once that space is cleared, they all hightail it out of there, scrambling back into the van. But the cops are outside too, and Axel initiates gunfire. On my first watch, this was the moment where I started to really get annoyed, and the episode nearly lost me. Still almost loses me here. Now. It felt like we were and are descending into been there, done that territory of something that feels so at odds with the rest of Stranger Things. Like, I know this episode is kind of an odd duck. It's 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 a bit of the, the oddball. I've admitted that. But despite its differences, it still never quite feels totally out of place to me. This started to feel that way. I was like, we're doing this now? Why? Like, I was with you all the way through the rest of this bizarre change of pace, but for this as our culmination? And I think I was worried that Elle was going to get arrested or shot or something, and that would have been a bridge too far, a point of no return for me. And I still don't like this, this moment, this beat, but here's why I don't write it off. I actually think it works. This moment ends up serving as a reflection of exactly what Elle is supposed to be thinking and feeling. I left Hawkins for this? I don't want this. But they do manage to get out of this mess because Kali creates another mass illusion. A steel wall or stone wall, but it looks steel to me, that buys them enough cover to all scramble into the van. Except Elle. She tells Kali that she has to go back. And as Kali tries to persuade Elle to get in, her illusion flickers, almost like it's burning up. And we get, no hyperbole, one of my favorite exchanges in the entire series. Quote, they cannot save you, Jane. No, but I can save them. End quote. Dude, I throw my arms up when I hear that line. It is an honest-to-God fist-pumping moment. Heidi's mentioned before how much she loves Elle's move of holding her arms out to protect her friends, and I feel like this is a verbal version of that sentiment. This is who Elle is. This is the moment where she decides, this is who I want to be. She chooses to help her friends instead of following Kali and giving in to hate. She chooses not to be the monster. But I also respect the hell out of the fact that this moment, as awesome as it is, it ain't easy. As Elle runs away, she is crying. It costs her a lot to make that choice. And the blocking and, fr and framing of all of this is fantastic. The van is whipping around, the bullets are still flying. It's the perfect depiction of chaos and conflict and discord and hostility. Meanwhile, Elle runs down the alley, which is quiet and solitary. Also, if you watch it with subtitles, you can see that the others are still questioning Elle's decision. What the hell was that? What's wrong with her? You know, but Kali just stares dumbfounded and dazed and turns and looks out the window. And that reflection shot of Kali in the window dissolves to a reflection of Elle back on a bus. A nice woman sits next to Elle, a woman who asks where Elle is going, and she says that she's going back to her friends. Friends. It's a nice turnaround from some of what we observed in the past, that it's not just Mike, and it's not just Hopper. It's friends. And then she adds, I'm going home. Her choice. Hell yeah. And just as the bus passes back into Indiana, we smash to black, serenaded by the Ice School Work song, Whisper to a Scream, Birds Fly. And just as a final, as a button on the end of the episode, these final moments feel so triumphant and so powerful to me. And I really, I love that. I, I like the way I feel when this episode is over. Very, very uncommon feeling. And I really wish that wasn't the case. I, I really do... I want to go into final thoughts initially to just say that it, if it hasn't been made clear, if I haven't said it enough at this point, I am really sad that more people don't like this episode. Not even I'm bummed that people hate it so much, which, which I am, but I, I'm genuinely sad that more people don't actually enjoy it. We widen the world in a really fascinating way and canonically expose more of the lab's reach and place those affected by Brunner and his team and his work out in the world, scattered... And we introduce a new character, an anti-hero, only to forget about them all and pretend that none of this ever happened. That's the part that I think makes this episode ultimately, in spite of how much I've defended it, ultimately it's, it's a failure. The lack of follow-through. None of what's offered here is to be seen or referenced again. And I don't know, maybe Kali's story does end here, but it didn't have to. 
the show sets up that possibility. I dare say even that expectation. We only have two more episodes after this, and they have to, they have a lot to wrap up. So I didn't necessarily think we'd see Kali again in season two, but I went into season three going, well, they set up all of that. We got that. We saw that. Imagine what they'll where they'll take that this season. Absolutely nowhere. You know, if they had instincts about this episode, they didn't follow them. And that really, really, really bums me out. An episode like this is a massive risk. And while no, the execution didn't totally land, I appreciate that risk. In fact, I applaud their ambition to push their own boundaries and to try something new, to introduce new characters and attempt to stretch their own original ideas rather than nesting safely in what we already know, as well as digging further into the nostalgia and pastiche. Yes, there is homage and pastiche to 80s culture and 80s nostalgia in The Lost Sister, but there's a lot more originality to be found here. I understand why the structural change, the format switch that happens really wrong-footed some, most, viewers. I was really feeling the absence of the other characters on this critical rewatch, and it suddenly hit me that, hey, you know, for, for us viewers who don't like being cut off from those other characters, we don't like how that feels, well, guess what? Neither does Eleven. And the secret power of this episode, I would even argue the thing that makes it kind of brilliant, actually, bizarre structure changes and all, is that it delivers a perfect demonstration of Eleven's point of view. Our frustration mirrors Eleven's, and the show itself winds up making a statement about the kind of morals it has. And it doesn't do that a lot of the time. This episode makes it pretty clear that revenge is not a worthy cause. It dissolves into chaos and will not bring peace. I can't help but respect that. Doesn't always, the show can be a little bit indifferent on some other issues that I do think are important. And in some cases, they back out of some directions that they take. I wish that the Duffers had trusted their own ideas more and leaned into the ideas here more rather than adhering so severely to the negative reaction that this received. There's a lot of wasted potential here. As far as listening to your audience and respecting your audience, absolutely, 100%. Author-creator-audience relationship is super valuable. But I also think it's important for creators to trust themselves. And maybe they didn't have a vision beyond this, but I wish that they'd leaned into it instead of careening so far away. And in terms of characterization and to, to kind of lean into and to kind of focus in a little bit on Kali, I read this whole episode as her being the one in pain. Her drive for revenge is burning her up inside. And honestly, the illusion of the wall simmering and falling apart as she talks to Elle serves as a pretty awesome metaphor. It's one of the reasons that I don't think her story is complete here. Maybe it is, and that makes this a tragedy, but the way she looks in those last few moments implies to me that she's reevaluating or at least shell-shocked into a daze over what's happened, and, and that feels open-ended. As Elle runs away, as they separate... Kali really reels from Elle's decision and absolute conviction in her the polar opposite belief from Kali's own. My interpretation is that she's going, there's another way? There's another choice to be made here? She has tears in her eyes, and those tears feel real, unlike others in the episode. And she turns away from the other people. Those are private, and she I don't think she wants them to see. In conclusion... I think this is an episode that, contrary to most things, actually holds up better on close critique and analysis than it does at face value, which is one of the things I really like about it. So, if you're still with me, then I hope this means that I've hopefully shared a perspective with you that you agree with, and it was nice to hear someone actually give this episode some love, or you were willing to hear me out and maybe have a different perspective reach you. And regardless of where you stand on this episode, I, I strongly invite everyone to rewatch it. I think that this episode is probably one that people have watched the least. It holds up a lot better than I, th than I think it may seem, I th than a lot of people remember. I think there's a lot of good to be found here, maybe against my better judgment. I'm hoping that season four, even if it doesn't bring back these characters specifically, I'm hoping that we see something at this level of ambition, of creativity 
I think season three felt a little bit less ambitious. And this episode, I think, is the culminate is sort of the polar opposite. It made a lot of bold choices, which kind of got lost. I think it's very easy to get muddled and trapped in the, well, the characters are weird and the, the different location is odd. And I think that those are all symptoms of a greater change that didn't get talked about very much, at least not in the circles that I that I run in and not in this her the the podcast and reviewers that I listen to um and read so maybe it did and I just missed it somehow but I I would love to see something quite as out there as this in season in season 4 I think they're 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 going for something and even if again it's not something exactly connected to this I would love to see them broaden the world beyond the characters that we have I would I would adore it if Kali comes back. I don't think she's going to because I think the the hate for this episode runs deep, but it would be amazing if we got another person, another powered person it would be fantastic. Maybe not probable, but possible, and that would be awesome. So I think with that said, that's going to wrap up all of my thoughts on chapter 7 The Lost Sister. <laughs> On this episode especially, I would love for you to join the conversation. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok. Links are in the show notes as always. And yeah, I would really love for this to be a bigger conversation given how much happens in this episode. Next time, of course, we will be going back to the Hawkins lab for unfortunately a rather unpleasant set of circumstances, but uh, lots to talk about there too. So uh, hopefully not as quite as controversial, but yeah, that's, that's where we will be headed next time. So thank you again for listening, for bearing with me, for hearing me out, but uh, until next time, over and out. Let's do this. <laughs> oh, no one's gonna agree with me. Okay. <clears throat> it's six. It's six. It's, not, it's like quarter to seven on a Sunday evening. What is with all the planes? I understand why the code switch that happens in The Lost Sister really wrong footed. That's not the right term. Code switch is not the right term. We did it! We got through the whole episode! <laughs>